Caloundra City Private School is an independent, non-denominational school located in Pelican Waters on the Sunshine Coast. The mantra for our school is every student matters. We aim for every child to be confident, resilient, organised, persistent and social in all aspects of their lives in and out of the classroom. This podcast series is designed to share valuable insights from academic leaders on current educational research and perspectives, as we all strive to help our young people reach their potential in today's ever-changing world. I'm joined today by Associate Professor Michael Nagel from the University of the Sunshine Coast, who is an expert on human development and the psychology of learning. His research areas include neurological development in children, early and adolescent development, as well as gender and learning. Professor Nagel, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. In your text titled In the Middle, The Adolescent Brain, Behaviour and Learning, you studied how the brain develops during the teenage years and into early adulthood. How do these changes affect the way girls and boys learn? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think when we talk about learning, there's a couple things. First of all, we know that boys and girls can learn anything, given the right context, the right opportunity. How they engage with the world could be a little bit different, um, and it's not necessarily a question of learning style per se, but of the fact that the chemicals within their bodies and brains um, engage them in different ways. And so we know, for example, that um, testosterone uh, courses through young boys' bodies, uh, you know, particularly when pu- puberty kicks in. And as such, um, behavior, you know, impulsivity is one of those things that we see in typical boy behavior. So that's going to impact upon how they learn, depending upon how the teacher engages with that impulsivity, if that makes sense. Because if you see that as a behavior problem, and you're trying to correct it by um, you know, punishment, and then you're actually setting boys up for failure in many respects. So do girls and boys learn differently? Not necessarily, and, and I guess that's one of the key things. It's, it's not about learning differently, it's about how they perceive and see the world and engage with the world. And I think it's important for parents and teachers to know that, you know, first of all, you know, when John Gray wrote, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, not all Martians are the same. So there's going to be a difference amongst boys. But by and large, there are things that go on inside the minds of boys and girls that allow them to engage with the world or force them to engage the world with a different, different ways. And so it's important to understand what some of those are. And what are they? Well, for example, um, we have something in our, in our minds, our brain, if you may, called the reticular activating system. Um, it does many things, but one of, it, one of its key jobs is to focus our attention. Now, in boys, what that means is um, evolutionary neurobiologists suggest that because we were designed to hunt and gather, we are very prone to hear and, and be distracted by outside noise, by things going on around us, more so than girls. And so, for example, if boys are in class and the janitor groundsman comes by and his rider mower, that's going to throw boys off. They're going to look out the window and see what's going on. And often it's very difficult to bring them back on task. And so these types of things are not typical of a bad behavior, misbehavior, the more typical of a neurophysiological process of the male brain. So what then is well, the optimum learning environment for a boy? Well, I think, you know, it's one of those things where a one-size-fits-all environment isn't necessarily good. You know, we give kids the same size desks, we put them in a room. Uh, by and large, most of the research evidence says that's quite suitable for many girls who tend to engage the world in a particular way. What we know for boys, for example, is that movement is key. Movement is absolutely key. Having boys sit for extended periods of time, and girls for that matter, but particular boys, can be highly problematic. Getting them to move around a little bit helps alleviate some of the impulsivity we see from testosterone. Yet sometimes schools can be very sedentary places and some teachers insist that kids sit still. 
I mean, historically, you know, teachers were trained that a good classroom is one that's quiet, sitting still, and focus their attention on the teacher. So you're saying in a subject, say I'm an English teacher, for example, that incorporating movement or just being aware of these issues would benefit the boys' learning? Absolutely, because what you will find, you know, if we, let's, let's talk younger boys, for example, if, if we're talking boys at six or seven or five, is, is any parent who, with a son will know that boys are in perpetual motion. And when you have kids and you, or boys and you're saying things like, you know, sit still, stop fidgeting, um, that's almost like saying hiccup now. It's, it's a neurophysiological thing that occurs inside boys. What you can do by encouraging a bit of movement or having some structured movement throughout the day is alleviate those sorts of things. And so if boys are rather impulsive or can't sit still, whether they be six or 16, having the opportunity for 10 minutes of doing some kind of movement in a class or giving the opportunity to get up and move around can be highly beneficial. It allows them to alleviate that impulsivity and then they can focus on what they need to do. We've all heard the old adage, boys are better at maths and science and girls are stronger at English and humanities. Is there any evidence to support this generalization? Very little. In fact, um, Dr. Doreen, Kim Doreen Kimura, who is a neuroscientist, a Canadian neuroscientist who passed away recently, wrote a fairly lengthy a book called Sex and Cognition, which looked at all of those types of things, those sort of stereotypes. What we find that there are some aspects of mathematical processing that males typically do better, but not enough to say that it's a distinct advantage. Too often, many of those things are, are cultural perceptions. And so we make those assumptions and we say those things, and it drives behavior in a certain way. Uh, I said at the beginning that we know that boys and girls can learn anything. Uh, it's just how we approach them and the opportunities we present them has a huge impact on that. When you say cultural, uh, can you elaborate on that a little further? Sure. Um, there is this notion that somehow uh, females or girls would be more nurturing. Therefore, we steer them into professions such as nursing or teaching or any one of those areas we're dealing with people. And while that might be the case, there are a fair number of females who uh, excel in other aspects. And we should be um, aware of the fact that what we should be saying is opening opportunities for all avenues of study and letting girls and or boys decide which avenue suits them best. So, on a neurological level, a girl's brain is just as capable of achieving success in specialist mathematics. Absolutely, absolutely. But how you go about doing that might be a little bit different. So, for example, um, I know in the United States at the moment, there are many uh, co-ed schools that have um, what they call gender-specific instruction. So, they might separate a classroom of boys and girls into two cohorts. They might work with the girls in a particular way on a particular content or subject area, and boys in a particular way, and then bring them together. Um, and work to the strength. So we know that by and large, um, girls typically are far better at oral communication. And so that should be something that is embedded in teaching mathematics, as opposed to boys who are far better at manipulating things. So it's the pedagogy that you use to engage the students that is critical to enhance their learning. And equally, boys can excel at English and humanities. Uh, no question, no question. Um, one of the things I think that happens in schools in the early stages that kind of maybe sets boys apart or, or pushes them away from English is um, we know that oral language and language skills uh, typically develop in girls about two years ahead of time in boys. So, so a three-year-old girl will have typically the same oral language capacity as a five-year-old boy. So when kids enter school at five years of age, girls are already two years ahead of boys. And when we start teaching them literacy uh, when they're five or six years of age, um, boys are already a little bit behind because of their embedded or their innate language skills. And what that does is it frustrates boys. Uh, this is one of the reasons why in some Scandinavian countries, the formal teaching of literacy does not happen until children are eight years of age, because that's when that playing field sort of levels out. 
And so that, I think, again, that's sort of a cultural thing that a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of in terms of developmental differences, where we assume at five or six years of age, boys and girls are at the same stage in terms of their oral language development and language development. It's simply not the case. Why is it that boys develop uh, to a slightly later stage than girls? Well, there are regions of the brain that, uh, if you look at a developmental timeline, that actually do mature a couple of years later. Uh, A particular region of the brain is uh, referred to as Wernicke's area. Uh, Wernicke's area of the brain sits in the left temporal lobes, the left side of the brain. And it's a part of the brain that, as your listeners are doing right now, as they hear my voice or your voice, allows them to comprehend language. Um, And there's another region of the brain called Broca's area, which sits close to Wernicke's area and it allows you to put language together so that it's kind of your syntax grammar area. It does other things but that's a fundamental function. Now we know in order to speak or write language you have to understand language so Wernicke's area has to develop first and we have studies that tell us that in terms of neurodevelopment by and large Wernicke's area is about two years behind in boys than it is in girls. Uh, and so what that means, again, is it's not atypical to see three-year-old girls and five-year-old boys have basically the same oral language skills. If we look at early childhood education, do you believe that the Queensland and indeed the Australian curriculum is designed in a way that best supports your research? I think the curriculum, by and large, is um, in many respects does not take into account enough about um, development, and particularly differences in, in boys and girls. Uh, If you look at the curriculum, it typically talks about teaching students, teaching children, and not often recognizing some of those differences that are looked at in many other countries. In terms of the recent claim that today's curriculum and teaching strategies favor the learning style of girls and that boys are being disadvantaged, what's your view on this? Again, it's one of those things, not long ago in Australia, there was a federal inquiry into boys' education and they published a report called Boys Getting It Right. The tacit suggestion in that report was that one of the reasons boys were in trouble was because in the 80s and 90s, too much attention was being spent on girls. Resulting from that was $33 million into where schools could bid for money to enhance the educational outcomes of boys. Now, if you look historically, you will find, I, I could bring in a quotes, a myriad of quotes. So in 2000, in Australia, boys getting right, boys are in trouble. In 1860, in the UK, the Houghton Commission published a report on education. There weren't a lot of kids going to school at that time. and basically said, you know, girls come to learn, boys have to be driven. Now, if in 1860, boys are a problem or having difficulties, and in 2000, they're a problem, who really are the slow learners? The reality is that perhaps it's the context, not the learning style, but the expectations. If you expect boys to sit still, sit at desks, and conduct their behavior in the same way as girls, you are setting them up for failure. They just don't see the world and operate in that sort of way. And that's highly problematic. It doesn't mean they can't learn what girls are learning, but they might have to do it in a different sort of way. So a one-size-fits-all model is not necessarily the best model. Why do you think that it's become such a concern nowadays? Well, you know, statistics are an interesting thing, and you can look at data, and, and, and what typically happens, particularly in political spheres, is, is data is cherry-picked, and you pick the things that, that provide a good soundbite. So while you can say that you know, boys are in trouble, a key question is, which boys? Um, it's not necessarily all boys. What we see is there's greater risk of disadvantage problems for those boys who are in disadvantaged areas or indigenous boys. So you can't use a blanket statement to say all boys are in trouble because that's simply not the case. We also know that some girls are struggling. We know that uh, bullying is on the rise, in, in particular cyberbullying and aspects of bullying is on the rise, and that's per- perpetuated more by girls. So it's one of those things where you have to look at particular contexts and see what the issues are within that context. 
You said that men may be from Mars, but there are differences amongst Martians, and you just um, touched on it then. There are so many highly diligent, focused male students in our classrooms. How do you explain the vast differences in the learning ability and behavior of boys? Well, that's a, I mean, that's the million dollar question and, and one that's often difficult to explain. I think the fact of the matter is that, and again, it comes back to the same. Um, it's not really a question of nature all the time. It's nature and nurture. And much of what happens for children before they even arrive school is developed long before they step you know, in the first, door, first time through the school doors. And so a lot of those habits and things are developed before they even arrive at school. It may not have anything to do with how their mind is actually processing information. It might be what they've grown up with at home that allows them to sit and focus in a particular way. Let's talk about the, um, the home environment and an optimum learning environment. You said that providing a stress-free way is important. What should parents be doing at home to support their students? Um, their are, you, are we speaking in the early stages, I suppose, before they arrive at school or? Let's start there. Okay. Well, we have decades of research that tell us that uh, two of the most fundamental things that are important for early development and learning are play and exploration. Uh, we also know that what parents can do is not try to assume that every moment should be a teachable moment. Some of the very things that parents do day in and day out can be those times, you know, when you're, when you're cooking, when you're baking, when you're cleaning, and you talk about what you're doing. Those are teachable moments. But the reality is that if you provide a, a loving environment and you take care of your children, we, again, we have decades of research that the most important thing is that children need somebody who loves them madly and takes care of them. The relationships are fundamental to all aspects of development. That's the foundation. From that foundation is, is about allowing kids to play and explore. Um, play is often in our society is held as a bit of a negative, you know, because we think, oh, well, it's, it's idle time, it's time not being busy, time where things aren't done. Yet again, we have decades of research that tell us in the early stages of life, play is fundamental to all aspects of child development. I think probably what parents more than anything do is, is not worry too much. We, we've seen in Western societies um, somehow this notion that a child has to have an academic CV by the time they're five years of age. And that in turn creates more stress. You know, we have a number of children in North America, particularly in the United States, at five years or six years of age who are suffering severe anxiety disorders because they're being asked to do things they're not developmentally ready for. Um, you can't hyperstimulate the brain into learning. There's a, there's a trajectory, there's a timeline of development that really has to be considered when you, whenever you're dealing with children. What about the teenage years? Uh, the, the, again, the million dollar question. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate, I have a beautiful 18 year old daughter and a 16 year old son and, and uh, we see these things. I think one thing for parents to remember, we used to think that the fundamental or one of the most important person for a teenager is their friends. Yet all of the evidence tells us the most important person in a teenager's life or an adolescent's life is a significant adult, usually their parents, uh, but in some cases could be uh, a teacher or a coach. So teachers play a very important role uh, in supporting young people. Do you think that um, parents are perhaps worrying a little too much? We've heard the, the phrases thrown around, you know, the helicopter parent, etc. What are your views on this? Well, I think what we see happening, it's kind of an extension of the academic inflation I, I spoke of earlier, where we're so concerned that our children are set up by the time they're 16 or 17. And it's an intergenerational thing. I mean, if I consider, you know, my father's generation, you know, people finish school, whether it be high school or university, they stepped into the workforce, often they were in the same job for 25, 30 years. 
But we know that students graduating from university today, so if a student graduates this year, uh, in all likelihood by the time they hit 40, they will have changed professions two to three times and jobs about 12. Now that's what the statistics are telling us. So young people today operate in a very different world than previous generations, and they see the world very differently. And it's important for parents to be cognizant of that fact and not be thinking that just because a child hasn't set up their career trajectory by 17, it's never going to happen. Um, many young people, you know, they actually don't find who they are, what they want to do now until they're 24, 25, 26. And it's not atypical for many adults to change careers now more readily. Professor Nagel, you wrote that the creative arts can enhance the educational outcomes for teenagers. How do subjects like drama, dance, music and visual art enrich learning? That's a, an excellent question. You know, it's one of the things, sadly, like play in early childhood has a, it becomes a bit of pejorative. The creative arts is, you know, is something you do when all the hard work is done. I, I mean, I live for the day when I hear a teacher say, you know, if you don't finish your work, you don't get maths today. Um, we do hear teachers say, well, if you don't finish, you don't get art. And sadly, we have, again, a large body of evidence that tells us that when children engage in the creative arts, all other aspects of educational outcomes are enhanced. We know that um, dance and drama are, uh, contribute to all measure of physical and cognitive development. There are many studies that tell us when kids are engaged in, in visual arts and music, they're not just massaging their mind in terms of their creativity, but there are also aspects of maths, aspects of literacy. And it's, you know, the best thing about the world today, I suppose, in many respects, is we now have that verb called Google. And parents can Google and, and just Google, what does the creative arts do for, for kids? And there are studies after studies and more studies telling us that creative arts should be central to what we do and not on the periphery. It should have the same measure of importance in the curriculum as does science, English, and mathematics. Yet we often, it's the, if you look at the hierarchy of subjects, we put English, maths, and science at the top, humanities in the middle, and usually creative arts at the bottom, which is tragic given the evidence that says that it should be central to what we do for all students. So perhaps a broad range of learning experiences provide the optimum stimulus needed. Absolutely. Uh, the more experience you have, the better. Uh, I think, too, one of the things that is important is that you can also overkill that a little bit by having children try to do too much too soon. Um, you know, one of the things that I find coming from Canada originally fascinating is when children enter the high school situation or secondary school, you know, at 15 or 16, they're asked to make decisions about the rest of their life and channel their studies and this, that, and everything else. That's a big ask for a 15 or 16-year-old. So in some respects, the evidence seems to suggest sort of a broad liberal arts program where you have humanities, maths, English, but also creative arts is very, very uh, sound, a sound framework for all kids. One, one skill the creative arts definitely develops is a sense of intrapersonal learning and knowledge and interpersonal as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And there are so many, the other thing about the creative arts and probably where people don't see is it offers so many tangential benefits. So we have studies that tell us, you know, it, it can enhance mathematical competencies and literate competencies, but there are also studies that it, it shows us that um, people who engage in creative arts learn to get along with better people, learn to collaborate, learn to cooperate, learn a whole array of skills that are very beneficial for 21st century. What can parents do to support their children as they change, learn and grow? I think the most important thing is the word you just use, support, but also provide opportunities. Provide opportunities for your children to engage in different things and don't force them. You know, one of the things that will turn young people off anything is when they're being told they have to do something. So if you have a son or daughter that wants to participate in music or you provide opportunities, you give them opportunities to participate in music, dance, drama, uh, soccer, uh, whatever, a wide range, and let them find their way. Let them, because 
one of the key aspects for learning is, is interest and interest and motivation. And it's very difficult to be motivated to do something when you're told you have to do it. It's much more motivation, motivational for a person if they can choose to do something provided, given the opportunities there. There's often that fear though that it won't result in a career, there's no money in it, etc. But if you look at it from the perspective that it is, it's an experience. There's a lot to say about that, you know, and I think one thing parents might consider when, you know, I, sometimes kids are engaged in music or things like that, and their parents are concerned, well, that's not going to do anything for you. But, you know, there's a great story um, in the 1950s, 60s. Um, there were two students in Liverpool in high school that failed music, and they were told that they would never, you know, really amount to anything. And it just so happened to be Paul McCartney and George Harrison. Now, if you think about the fact that they didn't do well in music in school and, and people were trying to steer them away from it, you probably wouldn't want to push kids away from something given the fact, you know, 50% of the Beatles uh, emerged from this school and with a musical interest and were allowed to explore that interest of their own volition. So I think it's really important not to try and carve out a career for your, your child so soon. Um, they'll find their way if you give them the support and the love that is so fundamental to their development. There is a fear of that competitive world, wanting to get ahead, having the best advantage, giving the best advantage in life. Is perhaps some of this competitive, the competitive nature of the employment scene feeding into this? It could very well be. And it, it, interestingly enough, that's kind of a generational thing as well. We're seeing research from millennials, you know, those children born in 2000 who are talking about the world in a very different way. They're talking about the world, about being collaborative and being cooperative and not competing against each other. They're talking about the injustices uh, meted out on so many others. And they, it's fascinating and it's very positive because um, they've grown up in a world where they have access to information 24 seven. And they're talking about things saying, you know, maybe competition isn't the best thing. Maybe we can create a world that's better by collaborating. And if you look at some of the enterprises on the planet now, you know, Google is, is an amazing organization. Uh, certainly it makes money, you know, no question. But how they actually manage that company and how the people actually work in that is, is really quite amazing. And again, uh, your listeners could just Google Google and, and, and have a look and see. It's a very different environment, how people are supported and, and nurtured and, and shown to grow and develop. It's not about one-upmanship. It's about collaboration and cooperation. As students graduate, I read recently that the level of skilled workers and unskilled workers, especially in relation to boys, that many of the jobs that boys once were able to get just simply aren't there anymore. How do boys navigate this new environment of the workforce? Again, you know, it's one of those things where I think, um, I often think that sometimes we tend to look, we look at going to university as the be all and end all and we don't give enough credit to those, those careers and professions outside of tertiary education, which is highly problematic. You know, there are plenty of uh, trades and professions that young people can, can and should engage in that actually allow them to fulfill, have a fulfilling life and career, and whether it be financially or anything else. And I think, again, that's kind of a cultural thing. Um, this might sound a bit paradoxical coming from someone who works at a university, but you know, a university isn't the be-all and end-all to, to a fulfilling life. Uh, plenty of young people, uh, boys and girls alike, find careers uh, through very different enterprises. And once again, I, I, I come back to Google. There are plenty of um, companies in the United States, and presumably here in Australia, but I'm certainly aware of those in the Uni United States, who aren't looking for university graduates. They're looking for young people who are creative. They're looking for young people who have ideas. They're looking for young people who, are, who aren't afraid to take risks and think outside the box, so to speak. So I think it's about looking for opportunities outside if 
if say a tertiary education isn't your forte in the early stages, look outside and see what else is available. There are plenty of things going on in the world. My son uh, constantly reminds me of a group of young men, I think they're about 17 or 18 years of age. They're referred to as sidemen, that's, that's their title. And they're, they're web designers and, and bloggers. And, and I think there's four or five of them based in the UK. He could probably have to correct me on this, but based on what he said, you know, they're multimillionaires who are leading very productive, fulfilling lives, doing different things. And um, none of them had gone on to tertiary education. They found a love or a passion and have, you know, exploited that to their advantage. And, and I think that's fantastic. And I think truly when it comes to learning, it's about loving what you do and finding that passion and, and going with that. And it doesn't have to happen when you're 16 or 17. It might not happen to you at 22, 23, or in my case, probably a little bit later. Professor Nagel, thanks for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed episode one of the Caloundra City Private School podcast featuring Associate Professor Michael Nagel from the University of the Sunshine Coast. And if you'd like to learn more about Professor Nagel's work, simply Google Professor Michael Nagel and follow the links. This podcast was produced by Tracy Burton, featuring music by Paul Cusick. Thanks to Dr. Ricardo Simeone for his audio support. Thanks for listening. <laughs>